You're listening to the RE Social Podcast with your hosts, Andrew and Vince from Onvi Invest. For more information, go to onviinvest.com. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. It's not to be taken as financial advice. What's up, guys? Today we have a super special guest, one of my favorite CPAs, even though we use Mark Holder. <laughs> Amanda Hahn is on with us. Hello, Amanda. Welcome to the show. Yeah. Hey, guys. I'm so excited to be here. And um, yeah, maybe I'll replace Mark by being your new favorite CPA. <laughs> I know you guys are all so busy. I'm like trying, I'm trying so hard to get Mark and everybody on the phone. They're like, oh, I'm busy for the next two months. I'm like, I need to submit my taxes, bro. Um, <laughs> um, I wanted to uh, let people know how we met. We actually met at the STR Summit, the uh, uh, Tony Robinson and uh, Sarah, uh, they hosted it. Um, and then we also uh, met at the BBCon 2022. Yeah. So, um, the party I'm for pretty, both events. I know, good, good, good party people too. The hosts, you know, they're, they're really party people. So it's really fun. Uh, <clears throat> I know who you are because I've been stalking you online for the last few years. But for uh, people who don't know who you are, do you want to give a little background? Yeah, sure. I love the word stalking. Uh, that doesn't <laughs> alarm me at all. <laughs> uh, but hi, guys, my name is Amanda Hahn, and I am a CPA who specializes in working with real estate investors nationwide. Uh, and my uh, passion is in helping real estate investors on how to save taxes uh, using their real estate investments. Uh, by night, I am a real estate investor myself. So, um, you know, I love going to the events uh, that Vince was talking about um, because not only get do I get to share uh, my knowledge and expertise, but I also uh, love to learn from other participants uh, or attendees who are at the event. So for me, it's twofold and it's never a bad idea when I can mix business with pleasure so I can travel for fun, see my friends, meet awesome people like Vince and Andrew and be able to take a tax deduction in the meantime. So you'll probably see me at a lot more of those in the coming years. Yeah, that's 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 so cool. It was, it was really fun to see you guys and, you know, uh, chat with you guys there. <laughs> do you have, uh, I don't know if you can uh, disclose this, but do you have any uh, famous real estate people that you are the CPA for? <laughs> can I just know like, mm. I have to ask the clients? Um, I, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> uh, I'm just for any of you who are part of Bigger Pockets, I am uh, the CPA for Brandon Turner. Um, he goes by Beardy Brandon now, but when we started working with him, he had no beard. So that's mm-hmm. how far back we go. Um, I also uh, do tax planning for Tony and Sarah Robinson. Um, and yeah, do a lot of consulting for probably, um, you know, the, I don't know if you call them rich and famous, but at least a lot of the movers and shakers uh, in real estate. Yeah, definitely. I, I knew that. I just wanted you to tell <laughs> because I didn't <laughs> right, know what you could... me, So you know all that. Yeah, I know. I also asked Brandon too. So uh, I talked to him. I'm trying to get him on the podcast. Uh, I got to uh, hit up his people. I got some information, but it's really cool. So um, I like to usually do the podcast like your journey. Um, so uh, can you go back like to the beginning, like how... Um, you started on the real estate investing. I know you're a CPA, which makes sense. You will be working with us, but how did you personally also start investing? 
Yeah, it's really funny. So I'm actually um, the third generation of real estate investors in my family. So my grandparents invested in real estate, my parents dabbled in real estate. And then I was told to go to school, get good grades and get a job. You know, if you guys read the Rich Dad, Poor Dad book by Kiyosaki, I had the rich dad and the poor dad. It was like the same person. <laughs> <laughs> so um, it was really interesting. I grew up around real estate because my grandparents, my parents did it. So I was like, you know, at the properties, helping them paint the walls with, you know, tenant turnovers. I'm obviously not doing a good job now that I look back. Um, but starting out my career, I really just, you know, like what my parents wanted to do, got good grades. I got into uh, one of the big four international accounting firms. Um, and I happened to end up in their real estate specialty group. And it was totally by accident. And what I did in the first couple of years there was uh, work on tax returns for a lot of large real estate companies. And um, that's where I met my husband, Matt, who also worked with me. And he was in the high net worth individual group, which are uh, the individuals who own those real estate companies. So I did the company stuff. He did the individuals on the side. Um, and so, so yeah, it was really interesting. And even, you know, so being around real estate, working in real estate with uh, real estate investors still didn't ever think about investing in real estate. It's like, you know, just never occurred to me I would do it um, until my husband actually read the Rich Dad, Poor Dad book. And I remember we we're just like laying in bed and he just turned to me and like, we should invest in real estate. And I really thought he was crazy, didn't know what he was talking about. Um, but, you know, then I read the book and it's kind of started, you know, everything kind of started to click together. Like, hey, this makes sense. You know, it's something that we can do. And that's kind of what got it, us started on the journey into real estate investing. Man, that's, that's funny because that's how we started too. Drew and I were laying in bed listening to Rich Dad Poor Dad too. <laughs> <laughs> Just a nice boy sleepover, huh? <laughs> yeah, love that. Yeah, we actually read the books and that's how we got started in 2018. And he was like, hey, bro, we should just get started. And that's how we got started as well. So so how many uh, properties, uh, units do you guys have now currently? Yeah, I mean, I have, uh, yeah, I have a handful of um, single families, you know, smaller properties that my husband and I handle. Um, in fact, my mom handles them <laughs> for us because she's retired. Um, and then I also, or we also invest passively in a lot of larger deals too. So syndications from apartments to mobile home parks. Um, and we do so with, uh, you know, our earnings as well as with money in our retirement account. Um, so, you know, basically the strategies that I talk to clients on, you know, like how to invest in real estate, how to use your retirement money for real estate. Um, those are all the things that, that we do as well. Um, so yeah, so super um, excited to be here to talk with you guys kind of a, <laughs> about the journey of how I got started and, and where I am today. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really fun to know that, you know, no matter like how high level people we talk to, whether it's you, or we, the last episode we released was with Mark uh, Kohler and, and then him and he, he owns real estate as well. And uh, we had like Gino Barbaro and, you know, all the Kathy Fedke was on a couple of weeks back. So it's just interesting, like how everybody just starts off buying one single family home and then, you know, just uh, snowballs. Is that how it started off for you? Just buying a couple of single family homes and stacking cash? Yeah, I mean, I remember, um, you know, the first property that we bought, 
um, it was really crazy because I'm the kind of person like if I hear something, I learn something, I, if I decide to do it, I just like do it. You know, I, I don't think too much about it and kind of real estate worked the same way. Once we decided we're going to buy, we just invested. And our first property that we bought was actually sight and seen. And that was it's kind of odd, right? That's not the norm for first time real estate investors. Um, but I do remember that uh, we were sitting, you know, ready to sign the closing paperwork. And back then years ago, right, it was just like stack a whole stack of paper, there was no electronic signature, right? you just have to facing this large pile of paper to sign. Um, and I remember just like my heart jumping out of my chest I was like, so scared, like, what am I doing? Am I really equipped to do this such a huge commitment? You know, it's like, um, signing your life away. Um, but yeah, we're so glad we did. You know, we've never looked back from then. The deals uh, got easier and easier right after you do the first deal. But um, yeah, I think that the first one that, uh, definitely was the, the most difficult one for us to pull the trigger on. And how much was that property, Amanda, the one you bought? Oh man, you'll kill me. So that property we bought was about $70,000. Um, I know, Andrew, you said you were just in Vegas. So I'm from Las Vegas originally. And so I know the market, you know, fairly well. Cause I grew up there, went to college there. The first property I bought that $70,000 property, it was like in the gated community and everything. Um, but, you know, back then it was just like real estate was the down market, right? It was the down market. And so you just, you know, what, what um, at the time no one was buying. So you can get deals all the time. What year That's was that? Cool. Was that like right after 2008? Yeah, that was around, yeah, 2008, 2009. Yeah. Was... So you were buying when everyone was selling it or panic selling and like saying, oh, get out, like interesting. So I am an extremist. Uh, this is really interesting too. So I, except my husband and I, we had, uh, you know, W2 jobs, right? You know, you know, a, a really good um, lifestyle. And we decided we were going to stop working and do real estate. We're going to bring all the strategies that we know and working the big four with all these, you know, um, extremely high income, high wealth individuals. We're going to bring it to everyday investor clients. And um, the time we decided to do that was around uh, when the market crashed. So so when real estate market crashed, we quit our job and we said, let's start a CPA firm specialized in working with real estate investors. <laughs> and also, you know, get pregnant, have kids and, you know, sign a lease on an office space. So yeah, just go all out. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I have a quick, this is kind of a random question. I, I'm really into psychology. So yeah. what, what made you decide, like, just go for it? Like, of course, the book, I get that, but everyone's always still really full of fear and, you know, analyzing deals and still kind of not wanting to make a move. What, what was the, the what was your biggest fear is my first question. And what was the tipping point? What finally made you say, you know what, let's go for it. Sure. Yeah, that's a great question. I've been asked that. So. Um, I think for me, the biggest fear was unknown, you know, just like not knowing if I can do it. Like I said, I've been around real estate, but my parents or grandparents didn't talk to me about kind of wealth building that way. And, you know, I was around it, but it was always for other people. So just my, my fear was, can I do it? Am I equipped? Do I have experience to do that? Um, I think for me, the tipping point in this, you know, I, I say this to clients all the time too, um, you know, from an investor's perspective, it's all about the numbers 
and the deal. So for me, I'm a numbers person, right? At the end of the day, I didn't, we didn't even look at the property. I mean, we saw pictures online. This was before like all the video tutorials. I just saw pictures, still shots. And and you're like, okay, well, that's great. And, and, um, and what do the numbers look like? Right. At the, at that time, all the numbers made sense. So it's like, okay, worst case scenario, what happens? Am I able to keep this property? And as soon as the numbers made sense, I think that was when it was okay for my husband and I to say, yeah, let's go ahead and do it, right? Because what's the worst that could happen, right? In the worst case scenario, I'm still going to be okay owning this property. And and why is that? I know the answer, but I want the audience to kind of <laughs> Yeah, I mean, so for us, it's like in the worst case scenario, there are other ways that I can create income, whether it's income from this property by repurposing the use of this property, or I have other income where I can support this piece of real estate if I have no cash flow for six months or whatever it happens to be. Sure. Yeah, it's great. And I'm assuming there was still quite a bit of appreciation. So you can always bank on equity and just getting out and probably breaking even at the worst case. Yeah, yeah. I mean, of course, that's, you know, kind of that's one of the metrics we look at today, right? In the past couple of years, there's been so much appreciation. And that's one of the exit strategies. Um, you know, back in the days, like, you know, 2008, nine, when we were buying it, appreciation was a question mark, right? <laughs> like, is sure. it appreciate? Yeah, I'm yeah, not sure. Um, but of Vegas. course, you know, looking back now, people are like, hey, what's your biggest regret in real estate? I think my two are like, I should have started sooner, even sooner than that. Yeah. And I wish I would have bought more. You know, I should have just yeah. bought like the whole community back then. Yeah, yeah, same. Yeah, I wish I was like, I wish somebody sat me down, some rich uncle who knew the game and just showed <laughs> me how to do it at 18 years old. And But, you know, you're, you're doing well. How many properties do you guys own now um, together uh, in terms of units? Uh, well, just by ourselves. So it's funny because I said, you know, I do some passive investments as well. Uh, those I almost like don't consider my properties. <laughs> I know they are, right? But I don't consider them right. because we're not like actively involved. So for ours, we actually sold quite a few uh, about a year and a half, two years ago. Um, you know, kind of, you know, for us, we're sitting on some cash. We're really excited to redeploy some of that cash. Uh, but in terms of hard assets um, right now, we have about six units. Um, we actually are closing as we speak on another property right now. Um, I think I'm supposed to be signing paperwork today. <laughs> I'm not sure. Are these um, all single families? Uh -huh, yeah, single families, um, small duplexes and things like that. Yep. Nice. Very yeah. cool. And so you cashed out. And you paid the taxes on it, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of assuming here, even though you know the tax code very well. What's the strategy there? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, for us, it's really timing, right? The timing in years where we have other losses. Like I said, I'm I'm also an investor in other people's deals too. And so one of the strategies that we use and we work with clients on as well is if you're selling real estate for a game, right? Your own properties that you're self-managing or just things you're active in. Um, and if you, in that same year, you're investing passively in other people's deals. If those deals are kicking off losses, then you can combine the two and, and, and get some good tax savings there. There. So that's one of the strategies we utilize. I also, um, uh, one of the rental properties was, it used to be a primary home for us. Um, so we, we turned a primary into a rental and then we sold it uh, within three years of moving out. So that was a, a pretty sweet deal where we had a huge amount of gain, but we didn't have to pay any taxes on that. So like I said, all the strategies we use with clients are the, are the same ones that we yeah. use ourselves. So 
And, and just just to uh, to break that down for the audience, just kind of like walk them through like what exactly that means. Like, why are we able to escape the the tax bullets? <laughs> yeah, you mean on the rental properties? On the one that you bought as a primary res. Oh, as then, a primary. Yeah, 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 sure. So in the tax world, there is a primary home uh, again, tax exclusion. And what that means is if you own your primary home and you live in it at least two years, then you can sell the property and you don't have to pay capital gains. And if you're single, you can exclude up to 250. If you're married, you can exclude up to $500,000 worth of gains tax-free. Uh, so that's the benefit of, of you know, a, just a regular primary home. But what we did was instead of just selling the home right after we moved out, we turned it into a rental property. Uh, for us, it was multiple reasons. You know, at the time we're like, hey, we think this property is going to appreciate. Um, we didn't really have a need for that money to buy our current home. So we just thought, okay, we'll turn it into a, a rental is really close to a local college here. So it worked out really well. Um, and the market, like I said, you know, kind of went up quite a bit in the last couple of years. So we had a, was sitting on a pretty good amount of gain. Um, so from a tax planning perspective, the key is if you have a primary home that you turn into a rental, you can hold on to it, but you want to try to sell within three years of moving out, because if you sell anytime within three years of moving out, you can still get that primary home gain exclusion of two fifty or five hundred thousand, right? Depending on if you're single or married. Um, so it's a really oh, yeah, cool. yeah. <laughs> so it's a really great way to you know get some more tax free gain. Now, I will say for those of you who are just like more into the technical details of things, um, you do have to. There is still depreciation recapture. So in those years when we were holding it as a rental, we took depreciation to offset the rental income we were earning. So mm -hmm. when you sell the property, there is some depreciation recapture. But beyond that, you're still able to utilize the gain exclusion because it was your home. Wow. And so if you sell it after, say, the sixth year, um, then what happens? Then nothing. Then you don't get any more primary home gain exclusion. So it's sort of like a hard cutoff in that three-year period. So if you're someone who has turned a primary home into a rental property, the one thing you should do, I mean, the one you need to do is talk to your tax advisor, right? To plan ahead. Right. But if you don't have a tax advisor, if you're just, you know, don't want to call them or whatever, uh, at least put it on your calendar, right? Put a reminder to yourself, you know, maybe like two years, two and a half years from when you move <laughs> out, have a, you know, a to-do that comes up and says, hey, decide what do I want to do? Do I want to sell or do I want to keep it? You know, you know, there's a tax benefit yeah. that might be taking. Wow, that's awesome. Vince, do you have any input? I'm, I'm actually sitting here like picking her brain and learning for free, so. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, this, this is really good stuff. I actually wanted to ask you more nerdy stuff was uh, for the depreciation recapture, what is the rate they capture it back at, Amanda, do you know? So it's you typically up to 25%. Okay, so if your tax bracket is 50%, you're still going to win. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, hopefully your, your tax rate is not uh, a 25, <laughs> it's 50%. It doesn't go that yeah. high. <laughs> well, I mean, it doesn't it go that up to 65 in California, right? With the FICA well, tax. So, so uh, yeah, so but we're only, so the, the recapture we're talking about is for uh, federal purposes, right? So, so yes, okay. California is going to be a separate beast. And I'm mm -hmm. sure you have audience from all over the US, you know, don't get mm -hmm. me started on California. <laughs> it's like a whole- We all I mean, live in California, guys. Yeah, we need like yeah. a whole different podcast just for California people. Yeah. 
but you know i think it's really interesting for your question because i think i know it's coming from because a lot of people talk about you know depreciation recapture like it's like the most horrible thing you know it's like a curse of of being in real estate and taking depreciation and um you know that's not the way i look at it at all right depreciation recapture is simply saying you already wrote off part of the purchase price of the property you're not going to write it off again right? So whatever you took, you're going to recapture that. So you're not going to deduct it twice. Um, but yeah, like you're saying, you no, know, that I mean, some people, if you're, if your ordinary rate is higher than the depreciation recapture rate, that's a benefit. Um, and also beyond that, just the fact that you can defer taxes into the future, right? I'm taking tax benefit depreciation. Now I don't recapture until if, and when I sell the time value of money of getting the tax savings is phenomenal, right? We, I mean, if I said, do you want to pay taxes now or do you want to pay taxes six years from now or 27 years from now? I think we all know the answer, right? Most of us would have the same answer. While you're selling an, a large asset, which is likely appreciated with a huge cash chunk anyway. So it's like, you know. Yeah, and I think a lot of investors- that I have to like break down for, for friends of mine who I'm just like, get in the game. I literally lecture everybody, so it's a problem. <laughs> <laughs> I think that, uh, and for a lot of investors too, they look at 1031 exchange, right? So if you sold a property and you're going to do a 1031 exchange by buying into other real estate, then you don't even have to worry about depreciation recapture, right? If you're doing everything right, there should be no recapture when you're selling and doing a 1031 exchange. We actually just did a bunch of 1031. So we started off like, you know, how you bought a $70,000 uh, property. So Drew yeah. and I had like $20,000 each. So we only had like 40 grand. So we were able to buy something for a quarter million in Bakersfield. So we started off our portfolio buying in Bakersfield uh, four years ago. And we figured out very fast that, uh, well, actually, we don't make any cash flow in the last four years. We made zero dollars, but we had a bunch of equity in it. So we started 1031-ing them into Inland Empire properties for those who are in California. We are slowly kind of trying to come closer to the beach. And then now this year, we started buying in Orange County. So, but we all had to start somewhere, right? So that's why I always tell people, people always want to buy oh i want to buy my dream house i'm like you will never buy a dream house you will be poor for life because that's because you keep thinking of your dream house right drew and i bought over 30 houses before we bought our primary residences because that's how that's how we could we could do it so what do you have anything to add on that topic of people waiting to buy like the dream home you know <clears throat> yeah that i love that you brought that up because I talk to clients all the time about, uh, you know, which property to buy, right? Especially for, for newer investors, like, you know, which ones make sense. And I think sometimes people fall in love with the real estate or the idea of owning real estate. And when you start looking at properties, they start to see themselves there, right? Like, oh, I want to buy in the, you know, this area. And maybe this is a property that I might retire here. Or when my kids go to college, that this might be where they live. Um, and that's something to, you know, not that you shouldn't do it, but you just have to be aware of what you're doing, right? Because an investment property at the heart of it is an investment. It comes down to the numbers. Like, 
when you invest in stocks, you're looking at, okay, is this, you know, this is company, the, you know, whatever the performance is, whatever the projections are, do, do those make sense based on what I'm looking for? And that's the same with respect to real estate. So one of the things I caution clients is, is when you're looking at the property, look at it for, through the eyes of an investor and not as an end user, or, you know, maybe my mom will live here <laughs> when she retires or something like that. Um, because that's when you end up buying something that doesn't necessarily meet all of your investment criteria. And I think like so for, for my husband and I, like our first deal, we didn't even look at the property. It wasn't like, like I was adamant, I'm not going to look at it. I'm not going to shop for properties and fall in love with something because maybe I'll move back to Las Vegas, you know? <laughs> like if I went to Vegas, I'm going to buy property there. Um, but yeah, I think you're right. It's, you know, it's just getting in those deals and then exchanging up as you have more and more net worth and cash available, then you can get into the larger or better deals of what you're looking for. Yeah, like we bought this fifty thousand dollar property, and we spent like I would say close to hundred grand because it was like messed up. But we sold it for four hundred dollars, so we had. And you, your net worth starts to add up. So it's very interesting how all these math pieces add up. <clears throat> I wanted to, I wanted to go back to your story where you were saying, you know, you, you started buying. Um, so people listening, they're gonna be like, oh, this is great. Matt and Amanda make millions of dollars. Of course, they could buy a house every year. So how do you suggest that people continue buying houses? Because Drew and I only had money to buy maybe five houses. After that, we ran out of money. So the way we dealt with this, we started raising capital with friends and family. So, so is there any other way to do that? Uh, do you have any recommendations? Yeah, and I think everyone's different, you know, I mean, we have clients who are just high income earners who, um, you know, have disposable income, right, to invest year after year. And then mm -hmm. there are clients that, are, you know, maybe like similar to what you're describing, where, okay, there's limited number of uh, amount of funding I can have. I mean, even for those who make a ton of money. Um, you get to a point where you're going after large enough deals that you have to work with investors or other partners, right? So, you know, some of the people like you see on bigger pockets that are doing syndications and, you know, funding and all that. I mean, they're very wealthy on their own, but they're not going to come out with $15 million right, down payment on, on a portfolio of real estate. So I think for any investor, um, it, at some point, it is always a good idea to learn how to partner with other people. Now, whether that's partnering, like you said, with friends and family on a smaller scale to take down properties, or it's growing into a major business enterprise where they, you know, where you're doing syndications and raising money from equity investors, or even, you know, private, uh, private note holders on your properties, right? Because at some point, you know, we will all run out of our borrowing ability um, and our ability to do things on our own. So, so yeah, I think that, you know, for, I mean, not all investors end up going that route, right? But for those who want to be active and want to be involved in this, you know, in syndicating larger deals, um, that definitely is kind of the natural progression that we see with our clients. Yeah. So for you guys, you guys just continue buying <clears throat> smaller one to four units. 
as you can. And then you just uh, hand out money to either, you know, some Joe Farrell or Brandon Turner with the OTC fund, right? Um, so yeah. that's that's how you kind of see it going, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you know, I that's, think that's, for a long time, yeah, there's, for oh, I was going to say, there's a, for a long time, there's been kind of a stigma, I feel, about being a passive investor. You know, a lot of people I meet, you know, I have, we have a lot of clients who are like physicians, for example, and they'll say, hey, I want to quit working in my medical practice, you know, exchanging um, hours for money, I want to do real estate. So they start off great, you know, they have like a couple rental properties, and they get some great tax savings, right? It's like for the first time, instead of paying taxes, they're getting huge refunds. And so for my job is to say, okay, great, let's do it again. So every year we do the same thing, right? Buy more, make a lot of money, buy more real estate, buy more real estate. And inevitably, some of these people will get to a point where like, man, my real estate is now turning into a job right? <laughs> mm-hmm. I have so many properties that uh, it's turning into a job. So I've, I've left my medical professional job to now be a real estate investor job. And, and so one of the ways to continue building wealth and getting tax benefits is to also, you know, leverage your money into larger deals like syndications and partnering with other people where that's just more of your money working for you, right? So I think there's some kind of stigma around, oh, it's best to kind of do everything on your own. Um, I think for me, I think there's nothing wrong with leverage. You know, having stuff on your own is definitely great, but also leveraging the experience and expertise of other people who are doing great things in real estate to help you grow your wealth. So you're really building passive income and not end up building a job. Seems like the video is stuck. Okay, cool. I think it back on. <clears throat> Actually, really, mine that's really laggy. Yeah, let me see. Okay. And I don't see Andrew at all on my end. Uh, I think Drew's trying to join. <clears throat> we can continue. Oh, there he is. Anything. Oh, okay. oh Drew's keys is back. Hey. <laughs> hey so cool. I didn't know. Is it mine that's really laggy or is it yours? Vincent? I don't I don't know. Is it mine? I don't know. <laughs> Maybe it's all of us. It's California. Um um the, the i wanted to hit hit back to the high income stuff so you know what i tell people is if you're working at walmart making eight dollars an hour maybe you should quit your stupid walmart job and then do the uh, uh you know uh, may do syndications or real estate full-time that does make sense but if you're amanda horn and you have your own company maybe it's not the best idea to destroy your business and go into real estate full-time because it that makes no sense because you're a highly paid professional making hundreds of thousands of dollars why would you quit that and start for, for the real estate right that's what i told my high income owner friends because the stigma is there like they're like oh i could do this by myself i'm like but why would you want to do that like you're getting most of the benefits because if you look at the if you the, the higher um, syndications and stuff you do, they split it 70, 30 or 80, 20 in favor of the investors. So it's like, if you had the money, it's better off you just do that instead. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I think that's exactly um, exactly the way I look at it too. You know, we have clients and I think it's one thing, you know, 
uh, having a high income job or business that you love, right? Um, you don't want to leave that, you know, like I said, we have clients who um, love their job. They're maybe like in the tech industry. Um, and they just love the challenge of what they do day to day or people who are physicians, they love, you know, making a difference, um, but they just want the job to be optional, right? They want that job or the business to be optional. Therefore, they're investing in real estate. They want to make their money, you know, put that to work for them. Um, and yeah, I mean, unless if you're someone who like hates their job and, you know, just wants real estate to be their main thing and those are the better people to you know to say okay maybe I want to stop working and do that full time yeah and and from your experience you know like uh, we do we started doing it too Drew and I um, uh, invest trying to do some passive investments too um, so do you see any difference in or what is the difference you see in terms of internal rate of return or just just regular returns do you see more uh returns when you buy it personally with just Madden yourself and then or if when you're investing in syndications uh oh okay <laughs> i see so so you mean our own investment versus like the syndication investments you know mm -hmm. it really depends because there's not like a, a rule of thumb right because in the various syndication investments we've done the returns are also different Right. So like a, mm -hmm. a multifamily in Texas is going to be different than multifamily in Florida. And that'll be different than maybe like a mobile home park in Ohio. Um, so so I think it, it differs pretty significantly depending on the asset itself. You know what I always tell clients if, if, for people who are looking for syndication investments, um, the due diligence you do is not just on the properties, right? When we're buying our own properties, we do due diligence on that piece of real estate, right? We do have the appraisals, we do the inspections, and we look at the market area and the rent that, that we're just doing on the property. When you do syndications, you're looking at the property, but you're also looking at the syndicators behind the deal. Why is that? Well, because they are the decision makers of your money. Right. So if you, you need to make sure your syndicators are people who have experience, who have a good track record, um, because if the people behind the deals are not great uh, or not good, then your money is what is at risk. And I'll be the first one to admit, you know, one of the first syndication deals I invested in, um, I lost all my money. And that was through my retirement account. I mean, not all my retirement account money, but all the money I put into that deal. And it was a really hard lesson for me to learn, right? Because I'm an advisor. And at the time I was new to this like self-directed investing and syndications. And um, so what happens a lot is people will say, hey, I heard so-and-so on this podcast or I saw them on stage and they're a syndicator. So they must be awesome. And so whatever it is that they're, you know, throwing out there, I'm going to put my money, I'm going to jump and be the first one. Uh, but don't do that. You know, look at the deal. It's still your money. Look at the deal. Um, just do a quick Google search, you know, like John Smith syndicator and complaints or John Smith syndicator and SEC and lawsuits, whatever it is. And just see if there's anything that comes up. Um, because again, those are the people who are responsible for your money as a passive investor they're in control of all the deal flow and what happens with the deal. So you just want to make sure you do what you can to protect your money. Well, that was really good. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, you, you never know uh, what do you um, get yourself into un until you do your research. That's why I like, uh, I think it's Brian Burke. Uh, he did that uh, passive investing book, right? He's actually, I'm, I'm talking to him tomorrow on our podcast. Okay, so he's, I love him. he's, he's, he's a G. Um, 
So I wanted to transition. I know you're a CPA, so I want to uh, utilize some of your CPA brain. Um, now, with um, with a lot of the investors, including uh, Drew and I, we are now transitioning out of uh, a lot of the long-term stuff we've been doing, rentals, because we don't really make any money, let's be honest, after repairs and property management and CapEx, it's like we make zero. In the last five years, we made $0.0, right? Now, if you count the equity, sure, it's in the millions. But if actual cash flow that actually we can go buy like a nice car, nothing. We have nothing unless we sell the properties or exchange it, right? So we are transitioning to medium and short-term rentals. And how, how does that affect the taxes and things? What can we do to offset some of that higher income? Because a regular depreciation is not going to cut it if I'm making, you know, three times more in terms of short-term rental. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I love short-term rental. I actually just did a, a Facebook Live yesterday for short-term rental stuff. And nice. um, yes, short-term rental, I love it, you know, because it, I mean, well, from what we see, right, it's clients are getting a lot higher cash flow, um, which, you know, ca higher cash flow leads to appreciation, right? A property can sell it for much more um, based on the cash flow too. And it comes with some great tax benefits as well. Uh, so this is mostly for people who are still working full-time, right? If you are someone who is working full-time and you have higher income of, let's say, over $150,000, if you invest in long-term rental properties, you can only use the losses to offset W-2 income uh, from your taxes if you or your spouse is a real estate professional, right? And we can spend a lot of time talking about that, uh, but at the heart of it is you're spending more time in real estate than your job. And so for people who are working full time, it's very, very difficult, if not impossible to accomplish. And this is where short term rental comes in. So the short term rental loophole is that if you have high W-2 income and you're investing in short term rental real estate, you don't have to be a real estate professional to use the losses against W-2 income. Um, you just have to meet one of the seven material participation rules. Um, I, I say there's seven rules, but there's only three that we really care about that we see time and time again. Um, so you can use short-term losses, uh, short-term rental losses to offset W-2 income if you meet one of these three. So the first one is you spend at least 500 hours on your short-term rental properties, okay? So if you spend that amount of time um, staging your property, managing it, rehabbing it, you know, all that good stuff, then you met material participation, which means you can cost segregate your properties, write off the expenses, and whatever loss you create offsets W-2 income. Okay. Um, if you don't meet 500 hours, the other way to meet it is if you spend at least 100 hours on your short-term rentals and no one else spends more time than you. So we're looking at the cleaning crew or the repair guys or the landscapers. So we're saying how many hours is Vincent spending versus each of those people? And if Vincent has more hours and he has at least 100, then you also met material participation. Um, and the third one is sort of a catch-all. The third way to meet the hours is you spend any number of hours, but that represents more hours than everybody else combined. So Vincent has more hours than the gardener and the cleaning crew and the repair guys. If you do that, then you can use short-term rental losses to offset taxes from your W-2 and other income. So this is a great um, loophole, if you will, for a lot of our higher income clients that are both W-2s, you know, and they don't plan on leaving their job anytime soon. 
Yeah, that's yeah. I've been I've been talking uh, to Drew about all of this stuff because he has a his own business, but uh, he is a realtor, and he owns millions of dollars of properties with me, right? So he's if he's not qualified as real estate professional, everybody else should go to jail. Like, there's no way. Like, he's literally building houses every day. Now, the my my question is: so for the second rule that you said, five hundred hours is the safe harbor, so that's easy. If you can't hit that, the 100 hours, let's say I spend 101 hours, Drew spends 99, Drew's mom spends 98, his dad spends 87 hours. It's not combined. So I'm still 100, so I win, right? Correct, correct. So yeah. the, I like so how you said, I win. <laughs> Too bad, Drew. <laughs> well, Drew has, we have, we, we have enough properties. He can claim something else. <clears throat> but uh, my question was, if... If we have to do cleaning and it takes 500 hours, what you're saying is just put it in between five people, then we're good to go. So that's an interesting question. That's one that we have clients ask a lot too, right? So for example, if the, you know, my cleaning crew is Molly made corporation, right? But mm-hmm. today Molly comes, tomorrow Janice comes, and then we have Jennifer come. Uh, does that mean that I'm spending more time than each of those people, then it's fine? Um, I think technically the answer could be yes. Uh, it is mm-hmm. per person. Now, practically speaking, you know, how would the court look at that? Would someone, if you had to go to tax court, would they say, well, actually, you know, Molly made corporate corporation is one individual for tax purposes. So we see that as one person. So you have to beat them all collectively. That's one of those many gray areas when it comes to short-term rental tax strategy, because, you know, short-term, to think about it, short-term rental itself, right, is a somewhat new area of investing. And audits have been low, right, very, very low in the past couple of years. And when returns are audited, they're not audited, you know, several years after it's been filed. So there hasn't been a lot of court cases or any that I've seen where they specifically address that question. Uh, but I bet in a couple of years, we'll get a more definitive answer on how they're going to look at it. So I think to answer your question, I think it would just based on your risk tolerance level, right? If you're someone who's more aggressive, you're, you can be like, hey, yeah, I'm going to take the position that it's each cleaner and I'll have more than they do. Uh, but if you're more on the conservative side, you probably want to say, well, it's all my cleaners versus me. And let's see what the hours work out to be. Okay. Sounds good. So easiest way to do that will be send uh, money to these people separately, then you're golden, right? Possibly. Yeah, it's better than hiring yeah. Molly made, right? <laughs> the mm-hmm. corporation. So that's one. And then my other question was, how are we with material participation record keeping? Is it Does it have to be as crazy as the next Excel sheet that Drew's got logging every two, 20 minutes for his uh, you know, real estate professional status? Yeah, it's the same, right? So the logging of the time is exactly the same. And what I tell clients is, uh, I understand it's like, hey, I was doing it for eight hours a day. Let me just put eight hours. Uh, But the more detail you have, the better it is. Why? Because if you're audited, it's not going to be years from now, right? You're filing your tax return next year. Then they have an additional three years to ask you those questions. And if you're like me, I literally don't remember what I had for breakfast like three days ago. So imagine four years from today, it's like, well, Drew, what did you do for eight hours of real estate, right? If you don't have documentation or at least notes to refresh yourself, it might be very difficult for you to prove what you did, right? It's just more time intensive for you to do that. So that's why I tell people, you know, the record keeping is you want it to be enough where you can 
be able to create those documentation to prove those points. Um, in audit, in our experience, when auditors audit uh, hours like that, what they'll do is they'll take a look at your time log and they'll say, okay, well, here's your time log is made up of a thousand entries and I'll do a sample selection. I'll choose five entries and test those. And if you can prove those, then I'm probably fairly comfortable. This is a legitimate log. Um, if I randomly selected five entries and you know you can't really prove most of them, then I'll probably select a couple more and a couple more until I just finally decide whether this is legit or not. So in a selection, if the selection is two hours out of today, that's much easier to prove than if one selection was you know, 48 hours of real estate, right? It's just two days of doing real estate. That's a lot of things that you have to prove for that particular selection too. If we have like, let's say we have like 40, 50 units, you still have to record all these things because you know it's going to be more than 750 hours, right? Yeah, I mean, it, you know, I think a lot of that comes down to the properties themselves and what you're doing, right? So, so we always recommend doing the log because that is a way for you to detail what you're doing. But sure, you know, if you're someone, if you don't have another job, all you're doing is real estate, you have 40 units that you're self-managing. Um, is it really important for you to have a log? I mean, probably not, right? Because everything mm -hmm. through your email and your phone records, probably everything is about real estate and dealing with the properties. Um, that could be a scenario where like, okay, the, the, you know, the logging itself is maybe not as important. Um, and I also want to bring up too, like the method of tracking, right? Because I know you mentioned Excel, <laughs> which is what we have and is what we have for our clients. Uh, but one of my clients uh, actually in, it was in the medical field and she created a real estate uh, hours tracking app. Uh, so I thought it was really funny because she's not a CPA. Uh, she's not a tech person. She's just like, you know, someone like in medicine. <laughs> That's what she practices medicine. Um, and she decided to create an app. It's called Reps Tracker, R-E-P-S Tracker. Um, mm -hmm. And we've had other clients use it and <laughs> they really like it, you know, kind of get you out of Excel world. Um, and they have something that does like short-term rentals and long-term rentals that you can track those uh, together and separately too. <laughs> What's it called? Reps, Reps Tracker. Yeah, R-E-P-S <clears throat> Tracker. Now, Drew, you, you didn't hear any of that. You need to track your stuff because uh, he has his own business and he gets he has an S corporation, so he's going to get hosed if he doesn't track because he he makes over six figures in that business too. So his his time is split between a two. Now. Sure. Well, so so then your um, but you say your business is real estate, right? Real estate sales. No, he has a guitar, uh, uh, he has a music school, uh, McCormick oh. Music Lessons. So he's a guitar player. So oh. he teaches, but he runs the company. So he's, he's sure. more hands off now. He doesn't sure. really spend 40 hours a day teaching, you know, week teaching guitar, but he's yeah. managing that business too. So that's why I'm making him track all the stuff. And so, you know, it's, it's working out pretty good so far. Now, yes, my question I love how is, says he's, ma he's making it. <laughs> <laughs> is that your oh, CPA yeah. making him do that? <laughs> I I am the CPA for my <laughs> all the stuff here. You're the CPA um, for Drew. Okay, got it. Oh, I love that. My son, I'm, I have an 11 year old, and he plays guitar mm -hmm. too. Uh, he's pretty nice. bad at it, but I'm hoping he'll get better at some point. <laughs> well, send him to Drew school. I because their hands are kind of just getting to that stage where they're strong enough and developed. This is yeah. steep learning curve, so. My advice is to you or for your son is two things. Definitely find 
you know, what he loves. Because it's just so hard. It's just really hard to play guitar. It's a steep learning curve. So find what he's really, really excited about. Yes. And then like go test out some teachers and he'll know. Yeah, he'll come yeah. in the car and be like, mom, Andrew's my guy. Yes. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. I let him pick out what he likes to play. So right now he's learning Harry Potter. He's like listening and trying to learn the music That's himself. Great. And he loves it. He did like blinding music light. Is music. Yeah. But the stuff that the teacher wants, he's kind of like, oh, I don't want to practice. No, forget <laughs> that. No, it's that. It's that because the teacher should be meeting him where he's at, yeah. you know, and that's why I have a successful business is because um, creating music school is nothing new. There's thousands, tens of thousands in the U.S. alone. But I took lessons long enough to realize this is garbage. Like there's so many ways to improve this experience. And so I wanted to do that for, you know, future generations. And uh, it luckily worked out. Um, I worked super, super hard. I was not fun to be around when the first few months of launching it, because I knew nothing about what I was doing, you know, getting systems in place and all that. Um, and then that came right after we bought our first triplex. So it was just, <laughs> it's like, boom, boom. Um, but fortunately it's helped us to fund some of our initial mistakes and I'm grateful for it. So yeah, I always like to tell everybody the guitar changed my life. It, it started making me like decent money, which is insane to think about, but back to you, um, in terms of, uh, what I should be tracking a little bit. I think our CPA, Vince, correct me if I'm wrong. He's like, you should have a calendar or tracker at least for like your music thing, your. Oh, I think you're on mute. All separately. Is that something you'd advise? Yeah, I think you. Um, so, so yes, if you have different businesses, right? Someone, you, you know, you have a music business, you have a real estate business. Those definitely sh the expenses should be tracked separately because they're taxed. I'm assuming in different entities, right? You I'm mentioned sorry. having an S corp. Sorry, yeah, definitely the, the expenses for sure. I'm referring to the hours. Should I be oh, tracking the hours? All? Yes, exactly. Because one of the the requirements for uh, real estate professional status is you have to spend more time in real estate than your job or other business income activities combined. So yeah, so if you're spending 1500 hours in the music business, you have to have more than 1500 hours in real estate to be a real estate professional. So yes, there's that added tracking uh, for people who have their own business. Now, if you're working, right, if you have a W2 job, that's easy. You don't have to track it. You know, it's whatever you're being paid full time is like, I think 2,100 hours a year. That's your hours that you have to beat. And I have people who ask me like, hey, I'm paid a full-time job, but you know, I don't have to work that many hours. I'm literally only spending four hours at my job. Um, so that has come up in court cases before. Uh, so the IRS, they're pretty uh, strict about that. You know, if you're being paid as a full-time person, you are assessed that 2100 hours they don't care that you know you're also you know surfing the internet or just you know playing around um because you're compensated right for those hours and they're those are considered work hours what are some of the common mistakes people make when they're trying to like qualify for you know real estate professional well so this is really interesting um i think that uh, i think earlier you know vincent you were talking about like hey uh drew has a a, um, you know, a real estate business or own X number of properties, you know, he must be a real estate professional. So just because someone is maybe licensed in real estate or sells real estate, that does not mean they are a real estate professional. 
um, conversely, you don't have to be licensed to be a real estate professional, right? So that's the most common mistake. People associate that with license or some sort of designation, uh, when in fact, real estate professional strictly comes down to hours and activities, right? So having the right number of hours, doing the right type of activities. Um, and there's two different types of activities too, right? For a real estate professional, you include all your real estate hours. So rental properties, long-term, short-term, rehabbing, you know, fix and flip, uh, commissions, you can combine all those. Um, but you also have to meet material participation for your long-term rentals, right? So, so that's, you know, actively working on the long-term properties themselves, whether it's acquiring it, rehabbing it, managing it. And so, you know, from a, from a tracking perspective, you know, making sure you have an understanding of what the differences are between the two, um, because that's what allows you to use long-term rental losses to offset your other non-rental income. Mm -hmm. I have a super fun question. Everybody in the world would want to answer to this one. So I am, and it's going to be not easy for you to respond. So I have, I am living in my primary residence, right? Mm -hmm. I have two roommates and a short-term rental at the back of my house. What the hell am I supposed to do with my taxes for this year? <laughs> so the back of your house, is it a, like a duplex? It's a separate? It's an um ADU. It's an ADU, okay, own separate mm -hmm. entrance and all that, just standalone kind of Yes. Thing. Okay, mm -hmm. got it. So the way it works, so it's a little bit different from a tax perspective, and we're getting a, a lot of these types of questions a lot, you know, like house hacking. So the way it works is actually different for the two roommates versus the back ADU. Uh, the mm -hmm. ADU is treated as a separate dwelling for tax purposes, mm -hmm. which means that if you create a loss, right, let's say you're depreciating the ADU, you're having all your expenses, and that's a loss, you can use that loss to offset W to another income as long as you meet material participation. Since it is in the back of where you live, I'm assuming you're doing everything with this. So probably meet material participation, right? So mm -hmm. if you meet material participation and that creates a loss, you can use it to offset all different types of income you have. Now, on the two roommates you have where they just rent out a room in your primary home, uh, you could still use losses, right? So you have allocated expenses and you know any related to the rental portion, you could still use that to offset the rental income from those two tenants, but you are not able to create a net loss and using that loss to offset W-2 or other income. Uh, those are what's considered, um, uh, uh, you know, renting. There's a tax term for it, right? It's escaping me right now, but effectively you are renting out part of your primary residence. Um, that is not going to create a net loss. Now you can still deduct mortgage interest and property taxes, right? Just like how any homeowner would, um, but there's going to be some limitation when it comes to expenses associated with those two rooms or two roommates i had, i have no income and i live in kansas that's that's gonna be the <laughs> nice uh, 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 <laughs> sorry go ahead amanda no no i know they're coming to an end i wanted to just final question is uh, are you taking on new clients and does it cost 80 grand per hour to talk to you how does that work 
<laughs> um, great question. So, um, yeah, we're always taking on clients, uh, but, you know, different times during the year, we kind of, <laughs> we get maxed out just based on um, availability and things like that. So uh, we actually currently have a, uh, what we call a strategic tax savings program. So it's a program mm -hmm. that my husband and I, uh, we head up and we work with investors as a group on how to create a tax savings plan for themselves. So we talk about, you know, how to maximize your deductions, what the best legal entity is for your scenario, um, you know, depreciation, like real estate professional stuff. So all those things we talked about today um, where, you know, after a podcast, people are like, but what does that mean for me? You know, what should I do? Does, is, does this make sense for me or not? Um, and that's what the program is designed to do. Um, so, so we have that uh, coming up. We usually run it maybe, uh, I think about three times a year. Um, so, so that's the one that's maybe for more newer investors who might not need like like you said, you know, $80,000 um, mm -hmm. of comprehensive tax planning. Um, and so, yeah, we're really, you know, we love working with investors on, you know, how to best protect their money. It literally drives me crazy when I meet people who tell me some of the mistakes that are made. Uh, I just think it can't stand on the sidelines. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, that's, that's a true marker of somebody who's you know, successful in, in what they're doing, which is what you are. So why you work with some of the biggest faces in the whole game, because that's the approach I think that winners take. That's it's like, even if it's not something new, like CPA, you're seeing all these mistakes. And you're like, I just want to fix the world. Why can't I help everybody? Which you can't, you know, obviously, you know, especially at your level, but that's why you have to charge that fee. And, and when people walk in, you fix their life, fix their mistakes. And that's why we need you, you know. Um, how can people get a hold of you? What's the, is there a website, email address, something you want to share? Yeah, yeah. My website is, um, so yeah, I didn't even say the name of my firm, right? It's yeah. Keystone CPA. And um, uh, so the best place, if you want more information regarding how to save on taxes, uh, go to keystonecpa.com and we have a, a free tax savings toolkit you can download with additional strategies and uh, also like a self-assessment tool for you to see whether you might be overpaying in taxes. Um, if you want to follow me on social media about tax tips, um, um, pictures of my kids and what I'm eating. <laughs> You'll probably find me on Instagram uh, at Amanda Han CPA. Oh, love that. And then you recommend anybody to get started with some kind of a tax uh, uh, CPA person to be on your team, even if you just have one unit or 100 units? Yeah, I think it's difficult. You know, it's not number of properties or number of income, really, uh, whether someone needs planning. I think a lot of that depends on um, not just what they have, but what they plan to do for the remainder of this year or early next year. And so, you know, what I always encourage people to do is you don't have to hire a CPA right away, um, but start interviewing early, you know, start identifying your team early. So whether it's talking to us or another firm, um, you know, get a call scheduled, right, to see. Uh, whether and when it makes sense for you to do tax planning, I think a good CPA firm will be candid with you and let you know, you know, maybe it's too early, right? Maybe you're, you're just not there yet. You don't benefit from it. Or maybe, you know, now is a great time for you to get started. Um, someone actually just sent me a DM on Instagram two days ago and, you know, kind of giving me a little profile. Uh, and I said, yeah, I think you probably don't need planning yet, 
you know, they're looking, they might buy something next year. Uh, so that's like an example of like, well, maybe you can start looking again next year for planning. But nonetheless, you know, you, if you don't know as an investor, when is a good time, the best way to do it is to start interviewing advisors, and then they'll be able to guide you on when is a good time to contact them. Thank you so much, Amanda. Thanks for coming on the show. It's been uh, super fun talking to you. Yeah, <laughs> Thanks for letting us pick your brain for free. Uh, please send us the bill. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> we'll yes. take you out for a nice lunch or dinner whenever yes. you're in OC. Yes, yeah. of course. Of course. Thank you so much. I really enjoy being here and I look forward to maybe coming back in the near future. Yeah, let's, let's do it. 